Okay, so if you're in your copy of the scripture, I need to find mine. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 and then the idea of glory to God in the highest. For what do you call glory? I mean, most of, Chris, uh, of Christmas is filled with glorias, hallelujahs, you know, the hallelujah, the Messiah, uh, all these different musicals and, and glorias or blessings for, uh, for Christmas. Beautiful songs that have been uh, sung and that we do sing around this time. And that's what the angels were singing. Glory to God in the highest. Where, um, where is God for you? And if he's not at the highest position for you, then where is he? Where is God in your life if he's not the highest? Glory to God in the highest, it says. And these were angels that were chanting that. Glory to God. When you look at chapter 2, by the way, let me just go back very, very quickly. Chapter 1, and an excellent treatise was made last week with uh, uh, Brother Jeremy presenting that, talking about the uh, the you know, the preparation for the birth of Jesus and so forth. And so you see that. So that was a period of maybe six months to anywhere from year, year and a half or so before this particular passage here in chapter 2. And then once once we finish chapter 2, I mean, we're going to see him go from being in utero to being being born to him going on the eighth day, to him visiting the temple again when he's 12, and then chapter 3 skips all the way ahead, another 18 years to when he begins his earthly ministry at 30 years of age. Wow. So things are moving very, very quick. Very, very quick. And even though Luke takes the most time to discuss these issues and gets into some very uh, nitty-gritty type stuff, especially as he uh, talks about things pertaining to the physical elements or aspects of the birth of Jesus, being interested in uh, anatomy and and, uh, medicine and so forth. He gives us that. Uh, We also know that he was a historian, and so he paid uh, particular attention to what was truly important. There's some things, you know, uh, that happened this past week. Anybody ever heard of the the name Paul Walker? Yeah, you know what happened to him. Nelson Mandela. Okay. Um, they lived two different lives. You know, one was in the fast lane for just a short time. The other was very uh, was in prison for at least 27 of his 90 years. But he, con- he came out, shook the hand of the guy who incarcerated him, and lived another number of years. I'm not sanctifying him or making him holy in any sense, but what he did for his country was great, absolutely great. Okay? And I'm not saying that you know he would be uh, a saint in Christendom, not at all. But I am saying there's a little dichotomy there in the lives that were lived. Look at how quickly they are. The Bible says that a man lives, person lives, 
70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. And then look at this one who lived even longer than that. But then their life is but a, a, a vapor. It vanishes quickly, dries up, and it's gone. Just in the twinkling of an eye, boom, as far as God's history is concerned. Remember the time when, you know, there was a, a princess died, died? Remember that? Remember the lady who also died around that same time during that same week? Mother Teresa? And how, how the conversation was more interested in Princess Di than they were in the life and work of Mother Teresa. Different, different religion, same God, and served his people. By the way, Lottie Moon gave her life very much like um, Mother Teresa did. Just expended herself completely till she was given up completely for the cause of the gospel, and especially as she carried that in China. So lives mean something, or do they? We're going to look at the life of Christ here very, very quickly, just looking at his birth, just for a moment, and seeing how much it mattered. The historicity of his is offered to us in chapter 2. It says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, or in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And it says parenthetically that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so it gives us specific dates in history that we can mark down. And some say, you know, A.D. 6. And it depends, you know, if you're using a Roman calendar or if you're using, um, uh, you know, a Jewish calendar. So I, I don't want you to get caught up in the particular date. But if you go back in history, these men, Caesar Augustus, and Quirinius, the governor of Syria, are historical people. And they do have a date that they served as either governor of Syria or as the Roman emperor. Verse 3 says, And everyone went to his town to register. There was a time in history when these individuals reigned and they caused that these things be put in place, like a census. Here in the United States, we take a census every 10 years. And, and primarily, or one of the big reasons politically that it's so important is that so we can enroll you, make sure you know uh, where you're paying your taxes. And, you know, no taxation without representation supposedly. So how many people are living in this area? How many people are living in this area? So this people, you know, these people, uh, a lot of people have exited. They've gone to this other area for, um, uh, you know, for jobs or what have you, or now they want to live there and so forth. So there's more over here, so they get greater representation. These people may lose a representative, and these may gain. And so we kind of try to make sure that there's equal coverage, that there's people representing us in our government. But the primary reason back in this day and time was just to make sure that the emperor gets your tax money. Make sure that you are registered, that the government knows where you are. Man, we don't have to uh, worry about 
you know, unmanned drones, and you know, <laughs> that'll soon be dropping off your uh, book from uh, wherever it comes from, you know, Barnes and Noble or what have you, Amazon, on your uh, doorstep while it's looking to see who's inside your house. No, I'm kidding. I don't want to go black helicopter on you. But those are s some of the types of things that are happening today. But look what happened then. Just a simple thing of causing a census, just to see who we have, make sure everybody's paying their taxes, is a time that was pointed out to us about 750 years before this time that they would be there. It caused Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, but not the actual father. Remember Brother Jeremy's message last time? The Holy Spirit came over her and she was with child. She who had known no man, she who was a virgin, gave forth, gave birth to a son. Right? That passage? Look at there. So Joseph also went up to the, to, uh, the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because that's where he was from. So 750 years before this, Micah prophesied, and we see the fulfillment right here, that a child would be born, a savior, a deliverer, and that comes to pass. Verse 5 says that he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, but was expecting a child. So no, they weren't married, and no, they didn't have relations, but still she was expecting a child, and we heard that explanation last week. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end or no suitable place for her to give birth. I want to stop there just a half a second and say that much is made uh, about this. But just look at it from your standpoint. Wow. Have you ever been on the road? Have you ever tried to find accommodations? And, you know, it's like, oh, I'd rather just sleep in my car type of thing or I'd rather sleep out under the stars. A very similar circumstance we see here. No 7-Elevens on the road. No, you know, big gulps. No, uh, you know, uh, gas station uh, hot dogs, you know. 35 hot dogs for a dollar or whatever they are. Um, let's see, James would go there. That's how he got so big. Where's James? <laughs> oh, you know what? He went over to take care of the kids. He's probably going to steal, steal their goodies too, you know, when it's snack time. Uh, just watch out. But anyway, there's, there's an appropriateness regarding this. Because the Lord Jesus, even though they say about him, glory to God in the highest, he didn't come to be presumptuous. He didn't come in the form of man to be as one to be worshipped. He came as God in the form of man to show the way to man back to God. That's why he came. He came in humble circumstances. He came in an humble body. He didn't come as one who looked great, one who had crowd appeal based on his looks or other attributes, but he came as one who looked like you and I. But different from you and I, 
he was groomed from day one to be the servant of God. In fact, he was God. I want to share with you these these next passages. Just kind of go very, very quickly since um, there's always a limitation on time, isn't there? But look, there's shepherds that are here. There's angels that proclaim. There are, uh, you know, the uh, the other involved parties, Mary, Joseph, and then uh, they had some offspring. What was his name? Oh, yeah. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus. Okay. And they're hearing all these things about uh, Jesus. Mary treasures all these things in her heart. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple when it was time for him to be uh, presented to the temple and for him to... Uh, to uh, be recognized as their child in, in keeping with the provisions of the law. They meet two elderly individuals. Simeon and Anna are there. And then basically we close the story with uh, a charge, if you will, at the end where he basically says to his parents, and they were going to the feast of the Passover, as was their custom, Jesus is 12 years old now. And as was their custom, they went. The family returned back home. And then on their way back home, they went, wait a minute, where is this Jesus? Where is our son? And then he has to tell them, didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? You know, there's a certain passage, you know, that, by the way, we have a certain religion where some of the uh, priests or pastors or ministers or bishops, cardinal, whatever, are called father. And some people take exception to that. But if you recognize that they're only an earthly father, there's no problem. If you say that there's papal and in, in, um, uh, uh, infallibility, then wait a minute, uh, maybe we're going a little bit too far. Because no man is perfect, even if they're the Pope. And some some try to explain that there's papal infallibility ex officio. So if it's in his office, official capacity. But I would propose to you that no matter how good I have tried to be, or no matter how good any uh, other priest, rabbi, or whatever tries to be, we're fallible. We make mistakes. None of us are perfect. But Jesus... Jesus was. Jesus was. And so when he says, my father, at the age of 12 years old, remember when he was sitting down and he's talking to them, he's listening to the the religious leaders and he's asking them questions and people were marveling at his wisdom. I think what he was saying when he answered his mom is this. Didn't you know, mom, that I needed to be in my true father's house. In my father's house. Remember Jesus saying that? In my father's house? Are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going away to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. In my father's house. 
We see this more than once in the scripture. And I think at the early age of 12, he was already recognizing. And he certainly left it out there for his parents to contemplate as well. That he was truly the son of God. I gave you a quick overview. Let's go back over some of this. Glory to God in the highest. When you see the totality of this particular passage, hopefully you can understand a little bit more. All right. Now we have verses um, 8 through 11 here. Let's look at this. Uh, Actually, 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And we're told, and we remember this story well, and many of us read this during this time of year and so forth, either to our kids or for ourselves or or hear it sung or repeated or watch it on Lifetime or, you know, any of those kinds of movies. It says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And rather than reading all of that, that's exactly what the shepherds found. They said, wow, they looked at each other and there they are. They hear this message of the angel. And by the way, there's always a sense of fear or trepidation initially when the when an angel of God comes. And it is an awesome experience to be confronted with the personal messengers of God. But that's who came and talked to these shepherds. And he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. When God comes with a message, it is awesome. And it can be terrifying. But the message should also be there. Do not be afraid. Remember, God's got it out for our good. He will take care of us. And if God brings you a message, while it can be, you know, just awesome and just like, wow, you know, mind-shattering or earth-shattering, to give you, you know, a sense of, Ooh, I don't know if I can take this message. God brings that message, and he wants us to receive that message. Not be so afraid of him that we don't hear what he has to say. God is an awesome God, but he's also our loving Heavenly Father. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So these shepherds are looking to each other. And they're saying, what is this thing that the angel has told us? Let us go see. Let's go to the place. Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Which the Lord. I thought it said the angel spoke to him. Yes. But the angels are what? The personal messengers of God. And these shepherds. Sometimes we might think of, you know, people that are handling farm animals or, you know, uh, work animals or whatever as perhaps a little bit lower than the rest. 
you know, they're the ones that come in to get their coffee in the morning. They're the ones with the big, you know, rubber boots and the overalls and everything and stuff is falling off their boots. I hope it's only mud. And I'm in there, you know, maybe a little better dressed or cleaner dressed to get my same coffee. But you know what? What they do is just as honorable as anything you or I might do. They were not just lowly servants. They were receivers of the word of God, gladly hearing the word and taking the word and seeing whether it was so or not. Kind of like the Bereans who heard the word of God and then checked it out, verified it, made sure it was so. And then they go back and they begin to tell as well. And they recognized that the word that they heard from these angels, these evangelion, they heard these words and recognized them as the word of the Lord. Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said. So what happened? They went to go see And then they went back to go tell. Folks, when we come to church, it's not just to come to church to be filled ourselves and, you know, get all that we can get. But it's to have something, an appropriate word, a timely word, a kind word to be able to share with others. Hopefully we'll learn something today that we can share with our neighbor, with our friends, with our family, with the people we share a meal with. Those folks. Go and see. You're doing that now. But then go back and tell. Well, you know, in verse 19, one of the most precious uh, uh, passages in this whole chapter is you find the mother, Theotokos, if you will, the mother of our Lord, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. As as a parent, and many are, but some are not, sitting here today, as a parent, there's something special about your child. You gave them birth. You helped bring them into the world. You care about them. You love them. And no doubt, Mary cared for her son. Remember when she heard, first heard those words and she was scared about those words, you know, hail, favored one. Whoa, 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 what are you talking about? You found favor with God. May it be, just as you said. And she just graciously accepted that. Okay, so now you find Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple. By the way, you saw the shepherds return. They were glorifying God. What do we see in verse 14? Glory to God in the highest. So you see glory glory is coming all the way through this particular passage. Uh, Glory to God in the highest and on earth to men of peace and upon whom his favor rests. So anyway, now in verse 21, Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple. It says on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, they, they gave him his name. That was the time, uh, by the way, he was already prescribed to have that particular name. And now he is uh, welcomed into 
uh, into the body or into the family. And he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given to him before he had been conceived. Wow. So they followed through. They were obedient to the messenger of God. Well, the time of purification came and so forth, you know, some 40 days later. Now they come. They're at the temple. And here's where two elderly individuals come into the life of not only Mary and Joseph, but of particularly in the life of Jesus and had a profound, a profound encounter with Almighty God. At first you see Simeon, and it says of him that there was a man there in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for Israel to be set free. He was waiting for Israel to be established. He was waiting to see how history, how God, how the kingdom of heaven would treat the nation of Israel. And while he was waiting, no doubt the scriptures of old had reminded him that my people will be delivered. And so he's looking and he's waiting and it says that in all of these years he was righteous and devout and he kept waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Before he had seen God's anointed one. Before the Messiah would come. He would remain alive. Can you imagine? Being devout. Giving yourself in service to the Lord. And saying you know I'm not getting any younger. I seem to be getting older. Maybe a little bit weaker. And I remember this promise of old. Is it ever going to come to pass? And he was waiting, expecting. The scriptures, by the way, tell us to watch and pray, to wait and hope. And there was Simeon doing the same thing. Righteous and devout, he was waiting for Israel to be delivered. And he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah of God, the Lord's Christ. And moved by the Spirit, verse 27 says, that he went into the temple, uh, into the temple courts, and when the parents brought, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary by the law, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now, dis uh, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon was satisfied. God, I see your salvation. Your promise, Christ has come. Your Holy Spirit has revealed that to me. Mary and her uh, earthly husband have come and they presented this child. And now I see, I see that this weak child who, by the way, needed care. He needed others to provide for him. He needed his mother's milk. 
he needed his, you know, diaper changed and so forth, or, you know, swaddling clothes switched out to some other ones. Yeah. He needed all that. But Simeon still aged, still devout, still waiting expectantly for the deliverance of Israel, was promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the consolation of Israel before he passed away. Before his days came to an end, he would see the promise of God fulfilled. And he just said, wow, take me now. I'm good. Now I know for sure that Israel will be delivered. The people of God will be saved. And not only the people of God, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. Wow. Well, there's another individual here. By the way, verse 33 says, The child's mother and father marveled at what was said about him, and Sinium blessed them, and, and then said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign uh, that will be spoken against. That is very hard to take. But you just go to your work. You just go to your classroom, not Biola. You just go to your neighbor. You just go in the marketplace and find out how quickly just saying Jesus will divide people. Quickly, the name of Jesus begins to divide people. Oh, you're a fanatic. Oh, you love the Lord too? Oh, you're one of those holier than thou's. Or, wow, praise, yeah, praise the Lord. This is a blessed season. You know, Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, so that's what you'll get on this side. And on the other side, what do you get? Oh, I know. You're one of those fanatics. That's what Jesus does. He divides. But then you know what side you're on, right? All right, now there was also a prophetess there. Her name was Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was very old, and she had lived with her husband for seven years after marriage. So she didn't uh, enjoy marriage life very long. But then it says she was a widow, a widow until she was about 84. And she never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. She also, like Simeon, came up to Mary and Joseph. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here you have an elderly woman who had served day and night fasting and praying in the temple. She wasn't just a widow who stayed at home, poor me, poor whatever. Nobody cares. The kids don't come around. Nobody calls anymore. I haven't gotten any letters, you know, whatever. No, she didn't do that. Instead, she was in the service of Almighty God all of those rest of those days. She served the Lord. And God gave her a very precious gift before she went on her way. He gave her the right to see the salvation that God would bring to the whole earth in the person and through the life of a baby. Even one who was born as the Christ. Wow. 
Praise the Lord. So we see all of that. I have kind of a little bit of a message to share with some who are my age or older. That doesn't mean that if you're younger, you can just tune out. Because in the twinkling of an eye, literally, you're going to look around, wow, how did I get here? You can't see it now because it seems like this semester is just lasting forever. It took me three weeks and nine days to do that paper, but it seemed like two years. I know. I've been there. But I also know that once you get your life, you know, I mean, you, you, you get your, you know, your degree, your little pigskin, and then you go out and you start working and you're doing this and you're going to church for a few years and you realize you turn around, wait a minute. I've already been married, I already had my kids, they're already leaving, and whatever, wow, and then now I'm here. And that passage is for you too. When you see people like Simeon, when you see people like Anna, I want you to see that, yes, they lived, but they had a purpose. They weren't just old and decrepit. They were elderly in years. But they had the hope of any little child that can't go to sleep on Christmas Eve. They were so excited. They were so waiting. They were so watching and so praying and waiting for the deliverance of Israel. They were waiting for the consolation that God would bring. They were waiting for the Lord's Christ. And when the Messiah came, when they saw that baby, the excitement that they had was insurpassable. They couldn't imagine anything greater. Ask a child. Right now, what he got for Christmas last year. Maybe, maybe remember, maybe not. But you, uh, you still watch, you know, uh, what is it, December 24th, the night before Christmas, and watch their, their excitement and, you know, all that. Well, that's what Simeon and Anna had all of their lives, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The greatest gift that was ever given. And that was Christ. Well, I told you that I was going to get to this passage here. You know, because we went from before the birth, we went when uh, Jesus, uh, in chapter 2 here, when he was just in utero till when he was delivered. And now, you know, he's coming to the eighth day and the fortieth day, and now we see him. We're going to see that he is 12 years old at this particular time. And then by the time you get to chapter 3, he's 30 years old. So it's moving very, very quickly right through here. But here's a custom that the family had. Every year they went up to the feast of Passover uh, in Jerusalem. They did that religiously every year. Every year they had that tradition. Every year Christmas comes. Ready or not, here it comes. What are your traditions and what are your values? What are the things that you do annually? And what is it that leaves a legacy or a remembrance for your family? But every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, verse 42 tells us, they went up to the feast according to their custom. And after the feast was over, we already mentioned how they had begun to go home. Now you see there's a certain trust there. 
that, you know, they didn't actually see physically Jesus with them, but they went ahead and returned. Okay, our clan is all going back. We're all going back home. And they thought after a day or so, okay, you know, well, Jesus, you know, our son is just with either other relatives or maybe with our friends. You know how he is. He's so inquisitive. He's always asking these things uh, and, and, and so forth. And by the way, if you want to know what happens between 0 and 12 or what happens after 12 to 30, that's where the apocryphal books begin to fill in things. And we kind of wonder, you know, well, did he really fashion clay and then, you know, make it a pigeon and it go flying off? Or did, you know, did he do? Come on. What did I tell you about this particular book at the very beginning? that Luke paid attention to what was important. He was a historian in addition to being a physician. And he tells us only what we really need to know. And when I told you that Jesus came humbly in the person of a baby born like as we, you know, he had all those fluids on him when he came out of his mom. You know, he needed to be cleaned up just like we did. All of those things, nothing was unique except that he came forth from a virgin. That's where the mighty miracle of God occurred. Jesus was special from day one. There's something to be said about this Jesus that has come. And with all of that he still lived the best possible life that he could live. And his parents knew that he was going to be about. He was nearby. But when they got on the road and after a day or so, wait a minute, where is he? Well, then they began, after they searched all the, you know, everybody's caravan and so forth, didn't locate him, they go back to the temple. And what did he tell them? After they found him three days later, sitting with some of the elders of the, uh, you know, the elders and teachers uh, and talking to them and asking questions, And people were looking at this little guy. Wow, he's only 12. He hasn't even had his bar mitzvah yet. He's not even welcomed into manhood in Judaism. And yet he's asking such profound and wise questions. And they marveled at how bright he was and how uh, wise he was. And astute about the things of God. And that's where his parents found him. And then I told you that when his mom asked him a question, he wasn't insolent as it might sound. But if you think about it, Mary, remember, she treasured all these other things that people were saying about him. But now 12 years later, she kind of, you know, it kind of slips or it doesn't kind of, you know, make sense. But I'm not going to say that she's to blame. Look at the disciples whom he ministered with 12 years, uh, excuse me, uh, three years and, uh, you know, the, the 12 disciples and how he taught them every day. So it wasn't just seminary that I went to for three years. I thought I'd never get finished. But he was there day in and day out, breaking bread with them, sometimes going without food, many times praying by himself, other times calling a few to pray with them and and so forth. So he taught them, taught them for all those years. And yet they didn't recognize when he was supposed to go 
to the cross when he said, I'm going to lay down my life. So let's not blame Mary for not recognizing this. But what does he tell her? Did you not know that I needed to be in my father's house? I believe that reference right there lets us into a little, gives us a little insight that he recognized that he was the Son of God. And it's probably not making all the greatest sense in the world to him either as a 12-year-old. By the way, how many 12-year-olds still remember how to tie their shoe or chew gum or, or walk and chew gum? You know, they don't know what they're doing. You know, they're kind of, they're kind of outgrowing their body and, you know, they're saying weird things and, and so forth. But Jesus knew what was truly important. And he, he tells his mom by way of response... When, when she said, didn't you know we were looking for you? Where were you? All that. Did you not know that I needed to be in my father's house? Well, wait a minute. Your dad's with me and we were going home. No. Did you not know that I needed to be in my father's house? Doing the things. And by the way, wherever we are, if we're doing the work of God, that's where God is. Wherever two or three, right, the scriptures tell us, are gathered together. There I am, he says, in the midst of them. Hopefully we can glean from that. So my challenge to you, my challenge to you who are a little bit older, my age or, or then some, or the ones that are younger who will soon be that age, remember? It's going to happen quick and then you're going to wonder, oh yeah, Pastor Rick said that a hundred years ago. And wow, it really did pass quickly. And it will. My challenge to you is when you become a parent, yes, train up your children in the way that they should go because you know the promise of Scripture that when they're old, they'll not depart from that. So hang on to that. And yes, you can be delivered. And although they'll give you headaches, you'll pull out your hair or whatever, but you too can survive that particular period. But you're not done after they're all gone. You're not done after they've you know, gotten a job or they've gotten educated or they've gotten married and they've had their own family. You're not done. (coughs) Just as Anna and Simeon were not done, you're not done. We're not done. Remember that saying of old, be patient with me. God's not, you know, God's not finished with me yet. It's, we're not done. As long as we're here in the land of the living, there is work to be done for the Lord. And our work as parents, or now graduated parents, they call them what? Grandparents? Those parents are not done either. And some of you are very good at being grandparents because you're great grandparents. Or great, great. (laughs) We'll see. But that work of nurturing, caring for, lifting them up in prayer... Being with them is very, very important. Be the light of Christmas for your children. Be the everlasting light of life for your children's children and for all of them after that. You see what it says here at the end? Again it says, Right after Jesus said, didn't you know I need to be in my father's house? Well, they didn't understand, but 
They went down to Nazareth with him, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus, like John, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. May it be that we too should grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. If we have to choose whose favor we, we want, let's not choose the favor of men. Rather, let us choose the favor of God. I want to just go ahead and pray and close this service. It's getting very late. Um, Brother Jeremy had a tough task of reading 80 verses last week. I had uh, 52 today. It's just hard to cover that much ground with that much time, the first 12 years of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to show that it was important. He was reared right from the beginning with God-fearing parents and delivered safely to his elder ministry. And then we know what happened with him around Easter time. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's our privilege as your children to call upon you at all times and to give you thanks. We thank you for this season of Christmas. We thank you for all that it means, for the lights that are there, and for you being the light of the world, our hope in whom everyone can trust if they will. Help us, Lord, to call upon you at all times and to seek your face, to wait, as it were, for the consolation of Israel, for your second coming, for this deliverance that we look forward to. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, we pray, even today, in the name of Jesus. Amen.